0: Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Thanks for joining me here again. Question for you, what would it be like to have a balance with nine zeros? How would you feel? A billion dollars. What does it take to reach that kind of money? Our guest today is Mitch Cohen, and he is the co-author of a book that answers that very question. And the book is called The Self-Made Billionaire Effect. Now, just to put things into perspective, there are more billionaires today walking the planet than ever before. Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Sarah Blakely, just to name a few within our borders. And according to Forbes, 2017 was a record year with the number of billionaires climbing 13% worldwide to 2,043. 56 of those billionaires, by the way, are under the age of 40. But there are only about 800 or so self-made billionaires, according to our guest. Mitch shares some of those characteristics of those wealthy individuals, and they include an empathetic imagination and what he calls patient urgency, which to me sounds a little conflicting, had to ask him about that. Mitch spent over 30 years in the financial industry. He is a retired vice chairman at PricewaterhouseCoopers. There he served as partner for over 20 years. And it was also there where he got the opportunity to meet and analyze the work and mindsets of some of the world's richest people. I also want to highlight that Mitch is a fellow Penn State alumni, and he and I both serve on the board of visitors at the Smeal College of Business there. So we are friends. And a fun fact, Mitch was a human of New York profile. You know, those incredibly candid portraits of New Yorkers doing random things as New Yorkers do, and they've got some of the most captivating and moving captions, well, Mitch was a profile and he will share that experience with us as well. Here is Mitch Cohen. Mitch Cohen, my friend, welcome to So Money. It's great to have you on.
1: It's great to be with you today.
0: I wanted to have you on for a number of reasons. Uh, I was explaining in our introduction that we are both on the board of the Board of Visitors- Board of visitors. Yes, board of visitors. At, board of visitors. Yeah, I wanted to say board of advisors, but board of visitors at Smeal College where I'm I'm a new member, I'm a newbie and you've been so gracious and kind and and helping me adjust to that and In learning about you, I also discovered that you are an author, and I thought your book would be a really great fit for our audience because the So Money Nation, as I call them, we're really interested in how to get to the next best level with our finances. We're super aspirational, and what's more aspirational than becoming a billionaire? I don't have that aspiration, I'll just be honest, but it's nice to live – It's nice to pretend and live uh, through the lens of a billionaire sometimes. And so you wrote the book called The Self-Made Billionaire Effect, co-authored that. And what's different, I think, about your book than a lot of other books out there about billionaires and rich people is that you focused mainly on the self-made billionaire. Can you define that a little bit more for us just so we understand who we're talking about?
1: Sure. And again, thank you for having me on. I'm really excited about this. Um, a few years ago, uh, my, my co-author, John Sviocla, came to me to, to talk to me about value. And uh, from the context that we have so many clients that, from Coopers, where I was a partner, that talked about creating value. And you hear CEOs all the time talking about value. Why don't we study people who've created the most value? And I asked him, I said, who would that be? And he said, it would really be the self made billionaires. There are there are a number of, you know, hundreds of billionaires out there who, I say, earn their money the old fashioned way they inherited it. Uh but the but the people who've created real value are those people who had an idea and took it all the way to, to market and created over a billion dollars of value through that process. So, we really wanted to focus on, on that population.
0: And I understand too that, you know, talking about people like Mark Cuban, Sarah Blakely, uh, John Paul DeJoria, all of these folks at one point or another worked for somebody else and left. So that's an interesting moment in their lives too. At what point do they realize I have something bigger to contribute and where I'm at, my employer is not going to be where I want to contribute. Was there any kind of discovery about that moment in their lives and what kind of things that they went through and what went through their mind and why couldn't their employers keep them?
1: Well, I think that last piece that you just asked about is a really critical one, because when you write a book like this, you never know where it's going to go. And what we discovered was, was just that point that many of these people had worked with other companies and couldn't achieve their objectives and get the satisfaction they wanted by being in those companies. Yet, those large companies that many of us in our firm deal with all the time are always in search of those people. So why is there that disconnect, if you will? And it turns out that many of these people, um, while they they've obviously been successful when they went out on their own and led businesses in a particular niche or specialty within a company, we're not actually the stars. And, you know, many companies evaluate their people and, um, in a, in a narrow kind of fashion with respect to their functional area. And in many cases, these people not only left those companies, in many cases they were actually fired and uh, were, were really unsuccessful. And uh, but, but at the same time, what I think we tried to convey to companies was that these people really think in a very, very different way and have had different life experiences that are much more holistic and not as narrow that m- make them the – the the right kind of people to really think out of the box and create ideas that can create great value.
0: You touched on something really key, which is life experiences. And there are – I've I've discovered that, you know, a lot of times people who achieve massive wealth and success oftentimes come from nothing. And that's sometimes – one thing that they will credit to their success they'll say because i had nothing i had nothing to lose therefore i was more risk tolerant i went out there i hustled but one of the uh sort of characteristics that you identify in the book the broad areas of these self-made billionaires is that they're imaginative and empathetic the empathy factor is key right and i think that if you do have a life that is holistic and full and has a worldview, and maybe you come from very few resources, that 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 inherently makes you far more empathetic, I think, than others. And how does that then help you as you are building a business?
1: Well, I think, you know, there's been a lot written about empathy. It's a very common topic that's discussed a lot today. But empathy ultimately enables you to really put yourself in the shoes of a customer, and think of things in a different way. That boy, a customer. It's Sarah Blakely saying, you know, with Spanx, that gee, I, I think women would really uh, want this. This is Steve Jobs thinking of things in a different way. That gee, I think this would be really interesting, and I think the market would want this. But to really think in those terms of how a, how a, how a ultimate customer. Um, is thinking, but the, the other piece of it is that, and there's plenty of people who sometimes say, well, I had that idea. I had that idea, but did you really have the imagination and the wherewithal to go out and then do something about it and not just say, what well, you, it'd be great if we had this, but, and that's what these people do. They do, they take that next step. But when, when we talk about life experiences and I, I want to make sure I convey this to, um, to your audience, you know the the one thing that i learned from a lot of these people is that they they they, they traveled they took courses and things that were maybe a little bit off the beaten path they had different kinds of jobs but they all i i say formed a mosaic of their life that enabled them to draw on these different things as they as they thought about things and you know i've done a lot of speaking at various colleges and universities and you know, the generation that's in school today, really many people want to get their degree, get that job. And at times I really encourage people to explore the, during your years at a university and maybe take some courses that may be not germane to your particular major or a very narrow area, but just things you're genuinely interested in. And it may have an impact down, down the road. Famous.ly Uh, Steve Jobs was asked many times about different uh, colleges and universities he attended, and I think he attended several, and he said the most important course he ever took related to calligraphy because it taught him about shapes and design that ultimately became one of the fixtures of what Apple ultimately was all about. So I really encourage people to – it's not a waste of time if you're taking something that you're really interested in.
0: How often did these billionaires in the beginning of their, um, of, of their entrepreneurial path said to themselves, I want to build a billion-dollar brand? How much was the money a part of the goal?
1: Zero and I think that's one of when we we're, when were first kicking things off about wanting to create a billion dollars of value, they were all to a person focused on, no, I see a problem, I see a need, and I have an idea how to solve that problem or fill that need. And without regard to a particular Dollar amount. Yes, everybody wants to create a certain amount of money, but I can tell you, even as, a, as an angel investor, and I do a lot of that today when people show up and say, "Would you, I, I want to make a lot of money?" Yeah, everybody wants to make a lot of money. but let's focus on what, what the idea is and whether there's a market and what's your plan and how are you' going to build a team and do all those kinds of uh, things. The, the money, I think, is almost secondary and a byproduct of achieving the success of solving. Uh, a particular problem. They don't necessarily measure themselves by by money. Something may fail and they may say, gee, I really learned a lot from that failure, which will enable me to do the next thing. So they're not always keeping score the way many people keep score with just pure dollars and cents.
0: Right. It goes back to the other tenet from your book, which is that they have a what you call a relative view of risk. And right. the other thing I wanted to Ask about was the the, another tenant is the patient urgency? Can you share more about that? Because that to me sounds like two words that would never be in the same sentence: patience and urgency. What do you mean by that?
1: So, um, you know, there's a bit of a myth out there. There's several myths we uncover, but one of them was that these ideas come up and they get to market, and you read about a. Um, a Facebook or companies like that. And all of a sudden they pop up and pe- they're worth billions of dollars. And people say, wow, that happened overnight, happened in a year. Well, when we looked at the data, um, you know, we're numbers people. So we look at data on average, it takes 10 years to achieve that kind of success and, and value. The consumer may just see it on the back end. That requires a, a tremendous amount of fortitude and patience to to wait that out. And we had many entrepreneurs tell us that, I knew my idea was the right idea, but I can't control when the market will, ap- will actually understand that it's something, and I can't necessarily control that. However, the flip side of that is, during those 10 years, you're not just developing a product, sitting back and saying, boy, I hope this takes off. You have this urgency to continually enhance it, improve it, promote it, to do all those kinds of things with a certain level of speed, but at the same time, balance that out with recognizing, you know, it may not happen overnight. And what we found was in, you know, there were instances where people had ideas that came to market, and one of the reasons they were successful and somebody else wasn't was that people sometimes sort of give up. And that is one of the things about these folks that's very different. They hang in there. They persevere. Um, You will have setbacks along the way. And one of the people we interviewed was Steve Case, who started uh, AOL, and he said his he felt his job as an entrepreneur was to smooth things out. You have these great highs where you're making an impact and you really think something's taking off, and you need to tell the team, okay, we need to sort of level it off and, and be able to manage this as we go forward. But then you're also going to have setbacks where maybe a product turned out you had a bug in it, and it was a bit of a dud, or you got some bad PR, or you made a bad hire, and you need to bounce back from that and to keep things in the middle on an even keel over a long period of time while sticking to your overall mission as to what you're trying to accomplish. And not everybody can do that. And and some of that is just, I think, intrinsic and in what people, the way people are. And sometimes life gets in the way and you say, gee, I've been at it for four or five years. Uh, maybe I'm married. I'm having kids. I have a mortgage. I need to do some things. Maybe I need to go out and get a, I'll say, quote unquote, real job. And unfortunately, sometimes that's what happens and and people give up along the way.
0: There are more billionaires now walking the planet than ever before. Does that mean that that it's easier than ever to become a billionaire, or is it still as hard as it ever was? I think it's
1: well part of that is just as as time goes on and value goes up, and you know I actually had somebody say you know what a billion isn't what it used to be, and uh um, but I, I don't think it's any easier or, or harder. I think what, what may create opportunity is that the world changes at a much more rapid rate than it did before. So And, and change is very often a catalyst for creating opportunity to create value. And I think that's one of the reasons why people say and and you could just look at you know, over the just the digital economy and what's going on or what you see with things like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and things like that that just didn't exist uh um years ago. And when you look at the list of billionaires today, you know, many of them, not all of them, but many of them are in businesses that didn't even exist or could have existed ten years ago. So um, the real challenge for those people will be how do they maintain their their relevancy and how do they make sure that they don't become obsolete and get overtaken by by something else? I mean, there was a time AOL was you know on the cutting edge of things, and now it's now it's not obviously. And <laughs> I know people find this hard to believe, but there may be a time when Facebook isn't the thing anymore, and that's. Uh, so, so, the world changes. Oh my god. Yeah. Blast. The world changes so quickly and I think that's one of the mm. the opportunities for entrepreneurs but also a risk.
0: Yeah. Certainly an opportunity. If you're anti-Facebook, then go make your own, you know, s- b- 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 right. the bottom line is people still want to connect, right? That that I right. think has been true since the dawn of time. So, it's just about reinventing the way that we do connect. Well, so much about billionaires. I mean, did you finish this book thinking, "Man, I'm I I, I didn't work hard enough to become a billionaire myself. I, I should have I I wish I could turn back the clock and, you know, get myself on that billionaire track." Or I don't know. What, what 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 for you, Mitch? What was sort of like the uh the aha from this book about yourself?
1: It's a it's a great question because you do reflect uh, on yourself a lot. And a lot of people who read the book reflect on, look, we looked at what I would call the, or, or the outliers, the people at the extreme end of the of the spectrum. Um, but I think when you read the book, you realize, well, there's certain things I can do that may be able to sort of move me up that curve a little bit in the way I look at the world and the way I conduct business and may improve my performance and may uh, advance me in in certain ways. I'll give you one particular example that really resonated with me, and you mentioned risk earlier. And one of the things that we talk about with risk, everybody assumes these are the greatest risk takers in the world. And what we concluded was, yes, they, they take a lot of risk, but they balance the risk of what could go wrong, which is how most people view risk. Balance that against the risk on missing out on what could go right. And I think when people think about opportunities, whether it's a promotion or a new position in their company, whether it's taking on a new, you know, moving to a different company, whether it's their own idea that they're trying to develop, there's always going to be a long list of reasons why things could go wrong. And I would never tell people to ignore those things. But you need to really think about, well, what could go right? Why could this be successful? And there was a CEO of a uh, large company, a Fortune 100 company, who when I explained it to her, um, she thought that was powerful. And what I told her to do, and she acted on this, but I said, watch your meetings when a new idea gets rolled out see the balance between negative and positive. And she realized, as I did, that very often when a new idea is put on the table, people very often find some reason why it won't work, and it gets a snowball effect. So she took it upon herself to institute a rule that when a new idea was put out with her team, she wanted the next thing said to be positive. And that gets the ball rolling in a in a different way. So I'd ask people before they... When they have an idea about doing something or something's presented to them, to, to think about the positives about it and what could go right before you think about all the reasons why you're not going to take that risk.
0: So much is mindset. My goodness. I mean, it really is. It's like just get your work on your head first and then, you know, the numbers will hopefully uh, right. follow. Right. Right. Mitch, you were a human of New York. <laughs> we we are we are digressing a little bit, but I had to ask you this because I think it's so cool uh, that you got selected to be a human of New York. And tell us about how that happened. A little bit of the behind the well, scenes.
1: I, I listen. I wish I could say it was because I wrote a book or did something famous, but I was literally just sitting on a um, a park bench uh, in New York uh, reading the newspaper. Um, when, um, the gentleman who, uh, does the humans of New York, um, happened to walk by and just asked if he could interview me. And, uh, he did, he asked me a few questions and, uh, lo and behold, I, I wound up in the book, which I think probably got more publicity than almost anything, um, I've, I've ever done. But an interesting thing about him, he actually, and that's become quite a brand in, uh, in and of itself, he was somebody who actually worked on – I asked him how he started doing this, and he actually worked on Wall Street, worked in the finance area. During the financial crisis, he uh, lost his job, and uh, you know he was a really great photographer and started going out and doing these kind of interviews on the street. And lo and behold, it becomes a really successful um, enterprise. Yes. And, uh, so, uh, you know, in his own right, he's a really very, very successful entrepreneur and he, and I know he had a finance background, but he clearly had the gift of photography and the gift and the guts to go out on the street and just ask random people questions about their lives.
0: Yes. And we're talking about Brandon Stanton. He's the founder of humans of New York. It's a, it started as a photo blog where he would collect portraits of New Yorkers on the street. And just to add to what you were saying, Mitch, he's got over 18 million followers on Facebook, seven and a half million followers on Instagram. And that book that you were in was on the New York times bestseller list for 31 weeks. That's, that's something.
1: It's amazing. I mean, it's really amazing. And it's, uh, um, so I, I mean, I love stories, um, like that and uh and he was uh you know he was really creative to go out and do that and i and I think there's a lot of people who have that creativity in them, but don't necessarily make that that leap to try something uh new, and they may be they may be surprised at where that where that leads them
0: start small that's what he did he just started snapping away his photos and posting them on one platform and i think it goes back to that characteristic from your book which i mean he's not a billionaire but he definitely knows how to execute and that is something that all billionaires have in them mitch we should mention too that we're you know we're both from penn state and um i think that it's worth maybe chatting a little bit about the value of of a, of a, of your college degree, wherever you go. And for me, going to Penn State was not necessarily my first choice, although now I'm so thrilled that I went there. I, I you know, in hindsight, um, it was the best decision I ever made uh, when it came to my schooling. But I think that there are still some skeptics out there about where you go to school, that you should go to a brand name. Um what's your thought on college in general? There are some people who think don't even go to college. It's not really necessary. What's what what's your kind of a nutshell Well, I think well, well,
1: if I bring it back to the book, I'll just say that there's not necessarily a, a correlation between um the type of degree, type of school, how you know, how far you went in school in getting a, you know, in creating a, a billion dollars of value. We had there's PhDs, there's um, people with high school degrees, there's, you know, it, it runs the the gamut. I think, and I would probably put myself in this category, even going back many years, you know, I graduated from Penn State in 1981. I went primarily to get an accounting degree, get a job, and, and I enjoyed my years at Penn State. But um, what I've really learned over the years is I probably didn't get as much out of it because I was really focused like many people today on, gee, I want to pay off my student debt. I want to get through school. I want to get that job. I want to buy a car. I want to buy a house. I want to do those kinds of things. And I really think that is as, as hard as it may be, those college years are really the years, you know, you, you really grow, you have time to reflect. And I think it's a matter of what you get out of that college experience and not just trying to get the best resume. Do you really have uh, a broad circle of friends? Do you have a diverse group of friends? Do you experience different kinds of things that are available within uh, various colleges and universities? And whether it's the top Ivy League school in the country or a community college, I find that there's always all sorts of interesting things and interesting people, but you have to put yourself out there to, to do that. And I think, you know, you talked about Facebook earlier and connecting and building networks. Well, you know, there's an old fashioned way of building networks too in schools and colleges and you need to spend your time and doing that kind of thing. So I would never say that a college education is not valuable, but I think it's very, very valuable. But I think it's valuable on a much broader basis if you really put yourself out there and experience um, what many schools have to offer.
0: I echo that, and I'm. I, I will say that for me, Penn State was an air, an environment where I felt like I could be an explorer. It was a big campus, which you could look at it negatively and say, "Oh, I'm just going to get lost and lost in the shuffle." But at the same time, like to your point, you know, the next positive statement following that is, it's so big, we're so rich in resources and people. Um, it's really it would behoove me to not you know tap all of that and. Uh, It really set me up for life because life is full of people. (laughs) It's a big world. And anyway, it's really nice to uh, connect with you and uh, looking forward to our time next in Happy Valley.
1: Yes, it's always happy in Happy Valley.
0: Usually. (laughs) Usually.
1: So, uh, Bernice, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to to share some thoughts on this. Thank uh, you, Mitch. I've become a real fan of yours and what you're doing, and uh, I'm really honored to be part of it.
0: Thanks, Mitch, and thanks for all the work that you do. See you soon. Thank you so much to my guest, Mitch Cohen. The book is called The Self-Made Billionaire Effect. If you missed any of this, just head over to somoneypodcast.com. You can download the audio as well as read the transcript. And while you're there, leave me a question for the Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh. It's the end of February, February 28th. I hope you had a great month and I'll see you back here in March. Have a great So Money Day.